Hello, I'm Ellen Dintz. Welcome to Impact, a podcast about how we can each bring about real change in the world and getting practical in making that happen. And hello, I'm Clive Johnson. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time, and a big thank you to our new subscribers. Each week, we look at one aspect of how we can connect our hearts to offer healing for others with our collective intention, prayers, and meditation, and talk about the critical happenings in our world that need our attention right now, some of which may not be making the headlines where you are. In the news that we'll be focusing on this week, earthquakes, floods, and volcanoes as far afield as the US, Australia, China, and Iceland. There's also hope of a peace plan following the coup in Niger earlier this year, and some good news, as we learn of a creature that's come off the International Union for Conservation of Nature's endangered list. More on that later, but first to our featured topic for this week. I am so happy to be able to interview my co-host Clive Johnson today. I want to tell you that I have not met anyone who doesn't describe Clive as loving and kind and gracious. Um, He's a wonderful man who's done wonderful things in the Labyrinth community where I met him. So it is my honor, Clive, to be able to talk to you today and have our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Bless you. It's wonderful, of course, to, to be with you as always. And I'm looking forward to this. So to start us out, tell us a little bit about your life and your family, where you grew up and just things you think that we should know about you. Well, I'm I'm single, so I do not have children. Um, I have never married. Um, I'm absolutely very happy being a, a, a free flower. Actually, I really enjoy my independence and being able to go, especially now, as I've got more into my spiritual journey, being able to flow where I want to. And that often means being in different places. Uh, I do a lot of house sitting these days, so I am really quite a nomad. I don't have a house of my own. Uh, so in between house sits and traveling, I come back to my mother's house, and she's quite elderly. She lives on her own. She needs a little bit of attention, so both myself and my brother, who lives uh, quite close by, uh, feel a responsibility to keep an eye on her. So uh, it's it's a lifestyle that is different to many people, but it's, it's one that I, I like. I live in a town called Leon C, uh, which is a commuter town for London. And I was born during that baby boomer, so-called baby boomer generation. And what happened at that time was a lot of people who were living in London during the Second World War, which included my parents' families. My my mother was very young. My father was a bit older, uh, but they 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 were they were living in London in the East End. They migrated to the sea. <laughs> we're quite close, actually, it's the Thames Estuary where we are. We're we're near to a stretch of water. I moved. I lived in Brighton on the south coast for quite some years, and it's still a kind of second home to me. I go there very regularly. I lived in Provence for a while. I lived in Brussels for a while. I lived in Edinburgh, which is another favorite city of mine. I've, I've traveled around a little bit, and some of that opportunity has come through the work that I've done in the past. I used to be a management consultant, which was tended to be project-based work, and so you could go and live in different places for a period of time. That all kind of uh, crashed out of that probably about 20 years ago, I would say. So, yeah, very much a, a free flower. 
I love going, that term, free flower. Going where the flow takes. <laughs> and I'm very jealous that you've lived in these wonderful places, especially Provence. I did not mm, know that. Mm, mm. And to learn that you were a management consultant kind of helps me put some pieces together on how you can accomplish so much. <laughs> That's it was quite a high too. it was quite a high pressure world but but yeah the the pro- basics of project management and you know having having clear objectives and, uh, and and those kind of things and structure and so on in a sense actually i i've got i've gone away from that and what more i've going to i've really been much more spontaneous and so on but that is that's always going to be very solid and helpful helpful skills and background to to draw on what was the impetus to leave that profession um I essentially, I don't know if I could describe it as a breakdown, but essentially I, I came to a point where I think I probably would, actually. It was it was very tough, and um, I kind of woke up to the politics. And being a bit of a gentle soul, I think, as I am, that was a bit of a bit of a wake-up for me as well. Albeit the companies I've worked for and was working for at the time were really, compared with a lot of the corporate world, really quite... Not uncompetitive, but they were not toxic environments. They, they, they were, you know, meritocracies and and so on. But there, there was an awful lot of pressure uh, in, in those environments. And, and working around uh, most of my work was overseas, actually, and a lot, lot around Europe. And typically, the pattern would be get up, you know, be at Heathrow at six o'clock every Monday morning, <laughs> and. Um, uh, arrive at the office, or when I used to come to the States sometimes, even if you're on an overnight flight, go straight into the office. Uh, it uh, it really was not uh, something you could... So it wasn't quite as glamorous as people think. You just go to a hotel and an office and you come back because you'd be working mm-hmm. all hours. And um, I loved a lot of the work. Clients, understandably, were very demanding because they pay a lot of money. And, yeah, you had to be on the ball. You had to be one step ahead of, and as you may know, in that kind of world, it's not just doing a day job. You've got, <laughs> got plenty of other things to do to uh, make a contribution. But consultancy was my world. It's the world I loved and felt right for me. Uh, it was in project management specifically and IT management that I was uh, had expertise. And I got involved with all manner of clients, big multinationals, really some very big projects that were going on in the world and pioneering in different areas right across lots of different industries. So uh, fascinating, fascinating. It sounds like a lot. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was taught me a lot. And I was Was very lucky. Of course, these companies have very good training as well. And, you you know, you you get such a good grounding. It was a real, real, real blessing and privilege to have that experience. Well, this kind of leads into my next question because maybe they go together, but I'm wondering where did your spiritual curiosity come from and and when did it start? Did it coincide with this or was it before and you couldn't ignore it anymore? Mm. Well, I've always been curious and I think that stems from my childhood. My mother, she always tells me, it's a beautiful story. She says, when I, when you were born and I, you were born healthy and so on. I was I was her first firstborn. She was so grateful. The first thing she went was go to the local church and see, how can I give thanks? And well not necessarily the very first thing, but one of the <laughs> and she went on a course of being confirmed into the Church of England and 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 so on and shaped quite a lot of my early upbringing. 
everybody went to Sunday school in our neighborhood. Everybody was in the Scouts or some other group. And um, the church had a part to play, as it did in the school, actually, the school assemblies and so on. So I took that seriously. I, I really, really lapped up the Bible stories I was told, and that had quite an influence. Didn't really lose it when I went on to university in London. Um, and at that time, I was more into the evangelical. <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> uh, and getting quite uh, quite high on the the beauty of you know the flow of spirit with the music and worship and so on and really stuck in my head this is the only way absolutely the only way that you know if, if you do not sign up to this particular creed there's no hope for you and i think it was much later and it probably was really um soon after i had this let's call it breakdown and came out of the corporate world and started trying to do a few things myself. So I got into coaching at that time. I trained as a coach and I start, I, I was just very curious. I was reading an enormous amount at that time. And I, I'd always, I still do have several books on the go. Not all, not all of them will always get finished. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll come back months later and pick up, but there were several topics. One was philosophy in general. One was, um, certainly learning about other faiths as well as Christianity and also popular science. So actually a, our kind of interest in how science, particularly quantum science mm -hmm. and the teachings of faith, not contradict each other, which had always been my belief, but actually really support and seem to complement. That started to become very clear to me. And uh, I also at the time was introduced to meditation all at the same time, I was taking a course that was, I think it was originated with uh, the medic John Kabat-Zinn, Buddhist, I believe. But essentially, he brought meditation into a hospital and popularized this form of meditation. And I went on a course that taught that and explored different aspects of meditation. Um, it was the time when I first came to the labyrinth. Uh, the labyrinth was starting to be introduced at a church where I was in Brighton by a very good friend of mine, uh, John Waters, who had lived in California. And he'd actually been at Grace Cathedral when they pretty well, in the early days, introduced the idea of a canvas labyrinth. And he brought that idea to Brighton. Um, probably was one of the first in the UK, actually. And we used to have a, a meeting every week with the labyrinth. And the other important feature with the labyrinth for me always was, can we have a little bit of a time? If people want, some people just want to go away and be where they are in the presence, carry the presence, where we can share. And we'd always have a breakfast because this was a breakfast time meeting. We'd have croissants and coffee, and it was a lovely group. Uh, so that was another aspect. John's Maybe work. for our listeners who haven't listened to any of the previous episodes, you could do a two-sentence introduction into the labyrinth because we will be referring to it. A labyrinth is a – I don't like this word particularly, but I can't think of another – is a tool um, for contemplation and for going inward. I regard it as a sacred space. And in terms of technically what it is, it is a path which – 
has twists and turns and arrives at a center. Uh, there are variations on that. There may be more than one path, but essentially you are following a path. You don't have to, it's not like a maze where you, you might get concerned about <clears throat> getting lost. And it invites, it encourages um, a movement within, which is quite hard to articulate, I think. Uh, especially if you've gone in, if you've walked into the labyrinth with the intention that I am stepping into a liminal space or a sacred mm -hmm. space, um, perhaps going with a question that you want to hold open. Something that virtually everyone I've ever known who's walked a labyrinth has come out and said, well, I wasn't expecting to have a powerful experience. This is just something painted on stone or on a canvas or uh, cut in the grass. How can this be? So difficult really to to actually put across what that is but um, in a nutshell and, and there are different varieties different patterns different paths i'm curious about the symbolism of the labyrinth as well and, and we could go on a long a lot about that we could but, and, uh, and uh, as we've probably, said before we might do a whole episode on that in in the future so that our Listeners will know a little bit more about exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, just to say about my spirituality as well, it has moved on. So I'm very interested in the mystic traditions, very, very interested, not just in Christianity. I've become really interested in Kabbalah over the last couple of years. There's, there's a wonderful rabbi in Montreal, actually, whose teaching I have followed a lot and really feeling into what the meaning of the Hebrew characters are, for example, and the resonance they have. So again, there is a chiming there, perhaps, with some of what we believe about intention and vibration and the origin of a word, origin of an idea, even before it's verbalized. And interfaith really came about when I really started to realize, look, all of the main traditions teach essentially the same truths. And it's not surprising because we come in from different cultures and different places around the world that we will have different ways of relating to the divine. So interfaith has become very important to me. I trained as an interfaith minister and at the same time have continued this interest with the with the mystics. Mary Magdalene's been very big in, in my uh, work recently. I put together a course on her recently and teachings and looking at some of the lesser known Gnostic writings, uh, not just the Gospel of Mary and Gospel of Thomas and so on which gets more into the cosmology, the idea of the cosmic, the idea of the cosmic Christ. And this is where you begin to see, my goodness, the ultimate, what we're aiming for is no different to what Buddhists talk about with nothingness and Nirvana, for example, and Hindu and Jains and, and, and saying the same. There is the same message. The Eastern faiths and the Western faiths mm -hmm. really, mm -hmm. you know, I see this coming together in, in a lot of the teaching. And there clearly for me was a crossover in the past. And we can learn, you know, our own faith. We have, if we follow a particular tra tradition, we can always be informed by the teaching of another, I think. Absolutely. Mm. And you mentioned that you're an interfaith minister. So tell us about that work and how, how that came to be. That happened quite quickly, really. I, I was... 
I had some friends who had been through a training that was provided or is still provided by an organization in the UK called One Spirit Interfaith Foundation, which was born out of an initiative that had started in New York. Uh, it was a, a rabbi and a, a priest and a Iman, I think, who got together and just really came to this realization: we 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 shouldn't be competing. Really, we should be encouraging I love people that. to connect. And the, the course they put together was as much about self um, exploration. I mean, it, it did introduce different worldviews and encourage and practices and encourage thought around that. And it had a focus on ceremony, ritual, rites of passage. But a lot of it was really to do with, like for me, going through this two years was about my my self-discovery and the idea that ministry doesn't have to be a, a profession, an occupation. It is something that we all, if we tap into, find our gifts, cultivate those and put those into practice and go as we are led, can do. And often that's going to be being in service to other people, or it might be to the environment or animals or whatever. So it came out of quite a sudden awareness of this course, talking to friends, and then I just got in my system really very strongly. This was something I was going to do. And I, it was absolutely right. The people I was with, connected with, the incredible support, the holding of space that was there, um, in the background was extraordinary. And I had a mentor who was brilliant. And I'm still very much in touch with her. A lot opened up for me. And again, it was an expansion of some of those practices that in the church was called contemplative fire, some of those practices. So that reintroduced, reintroduced practices like Lectio Divina and chanting, which I still engage with. I still have a, a weekly group um, that I have online, which is is not Teze based these days. It's is every tradition actually. Um, but um, yeah, looking at other practices as well. So Tai Chi, all sorts of things really. And and I saw on your website, Clive Johnson Ministries. Um, we'll put that in the show notes that you perform weddings. Mm -hmm. and funerals, and I'm sure other things too. I, I do, although um, most of my my ministry is offering online off offerings. I've, I've been very drawn to building online community, this idea of beloved community. I think that particularly really took off during the pandemic lockdown. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess a couple of years ago, became familiar with a, an app, the Insight Timer app that a lot of people have. It's a meditation app and it allows teachers to offer live stream events and guided meditations and so on. Um, so that's one example of a community uh, with one exception, I think, among the regular group there I've never actually physically met or spoken to people I'm connecting with every day, but really feel very connected to really very connected to. So it, it was a surprise to me that that could happen, that you know these communities and this real supportive and uh, loving community could come about through an app. <laughs> it is one of the silver linings of the COVID 
pandemic, I think, is the ability for us to connect globally like you're doing. Yes. And yes. to learn that the quantum mechanics of entanglement and non-locality work. Exactly. They do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and something, in some ways, is even, I, I feel, it, perhaps you're working even harder or you're, you're intuitively more aware of that connection going on when you can't see someone or hear them. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And we will put the information about your insight timer opportunities. Do you, is your program called We Are One? We Are One is a daily, a Monday to Friday, typically meditation, which is based on the idea of what's called in the Buddhist tradition, metta. So the idea you invite loving kindness for yourself, and then you progressively offer that out to to others. Um, and that's uh, that's pretty well every day. And I follow that with a daily intention focus. So the idea is that if, if folks are really grounded, they've really connected, they're really radiating loving kindness, we're in a good, we're, we should be in a good, pretty good position to actually apply this in a very focused way. They're coherent. You've become entrained. Exactly. Exactly. And now you can share yes. the intention. Yes. So I know that um, I know you're really dedicated to this, and and um, you also have an energy hour that you offer. Yes, that's it's actually usually two hours. Um, it was two separate sessions originally, uh, uh, slightly focused on different things, which is why it's called the energy hour. That's once a week. It's a, it's a vigil. It's a silent held space where. We can deal with um, individual requests, the personal requests people have for healing and intention work and energy work, not just what's going on in the world. You shared with me that your perception of and your um, use of intention kind of grew and changed. Can you talk about that? Well, I must credit your work. Um, <laughs> I must credit you know the fact that I think it was probably before Labyrinth Activist Network began, actually, but there had been an event, which I know you're very closely involved with, called the Big Connection, Labyrinth-related event every year, which invites people to come together. And Well, it happened on World Labyrinth Day. Big Connection was something that happened on World Labyrinth Day, and I am the coordinator of World yeah. Labyrinth Day. So you can put the pieces together Absolutely. on how that had happened together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you had also, and you'd brought into that very, I, I saw you present um, in some forum, quite a lot around the science. You had become very interested in the work of Lynn McTaggart, for example, the, mm -hmm. on the intention focus and the Hard Math Institute. And again, I'd looked at some of these as well, but the whole method I had quite a lot. And what I found, what was the real trigger? It was a real heart pull moment for me when the Ukraine war started, literally when the tank, the day the tanks rolled into Ukraine, I had a vigil that, that night. It was uh, one of the, the energy hour uh, sessions. And I did make some suggestions that for kind of topics that people might want to focus on. And in my own praying, I found it was going all over the place. It was completely scattergun and at times very generalized. It was, we pray for Ukraine, which at one level is fine, because if you're praying to what you believe is the divine, they, 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 
you know, they, they, they will hear that and work with it. But everything I was reading, what, what I heard through your work, um, and what I, I guess I intuitively believed was, no, this must be much more specific. And if I, as one individual, am focused on just one other person in a, in a war zone situation or, you know, a small group, and I'm very clear about what I am asking for, everything that I read and knew was that that was going to be far more effective than this very generalized and scattergun, literally going all over the place. And my mind would be turned to something else, and I'd be on focusing on something else. So that was a real turning point. And I went back and I looked at Lynn McTaggart's work in some detail and thought, this is wonderful. And <laughs> really, within days, had started a so-called Power of Eight group. Again, this was online. We have a meeting today, actually, later today. And we are still focused on Ukraine. Every week we have, since that time, we have met and um, held intention on a very specific topic. And the power of eight group is, um, we will also put that in the mm. show notes too, <laughs> uh, a book by Lynn Taggart. It is, again, is it, I mean, we, we'll, we'll talk about this in other podcasts, I'm sure, mm -hmm. in quite some detail, but the idea of a relatively small group of people, a collective coming together, having this exponential power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have written 12 books. Mm. I think that's amazing. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. Thank <laughs> you for doing it. Um, do you have a favorite of the 12 books you have written? I do. And it, it was the last one that I wrote, which was The Heart of Loving Kindness. Um, it's by far the longest. It took me the longest to research. And it seems to bring together a lot of what, a lot of my own practice and experience, but in writing also allowing me to, to explore that much further and go deeper with it and, and come to a fuller appreciation of what loving kindness is about and how it can be practiced. Um, I felt I had something to offer that was slightly new as well. Um, there's a lot written on loving kindness. There's some very popular uh, established teachers out there. Because I was taking an interfaith perspective, because I was coming, I think, with this understanding about how do these things we will for, you know, wanting people to be at peace, to be happy, to be free from suffering, so how do they all come together? How do they all ultimately overlap? And also some of the applications, actually, where can you practice loving kindness? Short answer is it anywhere, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I did feel I had something to offer. I, it hasn't really taken off, uh, I have to say. It hasn't, um, it hasn't been picked up as a, as a book by many people, which is a bit disappointing. But it's, it's there still. And you have a copy. I can see. I have my copy right here. And if we were doing a YouTube video, I would be able to show the, re the readers, that, I mean, the listeners, that uh, I have it. And it's so funny because last night I, I – in preparing for this and I thought, well, I'm going to pull a quote from the book that I really enjoyed oh my and ask you about it. And as I kept looking through, I kept going to the same page. Wow. It was wow. every time I've opened the book over the past few days, I'm going to the same page and I don't really know why I have to tell you, but it is page 110. Um, and uh, 
it starts, you, you probably will remember, it's by acknowledging the dark within us as part of who we are, we have an opportunity to integrate this into our lives in a positive way. And then integrating our polarities mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. emphasizing them, therefore seems important in the quest for wholeness. Yes. And I love that sentence. Thank you. I love that sentence. And we need to take our first steps back toward becoming that isogenic man. And I don't, can you explain what the isogenic man is? Um, Yes, I think I probably would have explained it a little bit earlier in the book. Um, It's one of the mystics teachers that I absolutely love is the Danish mystic Lars Mull. And Lars, he was a pop singer in Denmark. Uh, He went on to have some pretty remarkable spiritual experiences. And he spent a lot of time out in the desert in Israel studying Aramaic in in a very uh, serious way and exploring a lot of the what might be called esoteric aspects of mystic Christianity. So again, Mary Magdalene features high, Mm -hmm. things like the transfiguration. It has much more significance than we tend to hear of in, in the church, for example, mainstream. Um, this was the idea of the original Adam. And again, you find this in Kabbalah. <laughs> there is, we, we think about Adam and Eve, but Adam Codman, the original prototype human, if you like, was genderless. There was no purpose for gender before <laughs> it was Adam and Eve. Absolutely no purpose at all. It had no meaning. And one of the ideas is that at the end of the whole of creation, if you like, this evolving life that goes on 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 Earth, is to come back. And it's not necessarily linear because we're all on our own journeys. So those that Mm -hmm. reach so-called enlightenment, uh, that will be happening now for some people, probably relatively few. But... Um, you know, when you start to look at the cosmologies outside of our understanding of time and space, it gets a bit complicated. Right. But if we can think of it in a linear way as a story, um, the idea is we return to that state. And, yeah, the isogenic is the almost like the perfect human. It almost makes me think of like a Taurus field or what goes out comes back, you know, karma. Yes. All the, you know, the circle, the return. Yes. But within that, um, the polarities, I one huge thing for me for many years now has been trying to understand what do we mean by divine feminine, sacred masculine. Mm-hmm. I'm actually putting together a course on this at the moment, which I think could be months before it's available because it's such a it's a topic I've come come back to so many times, and every time I do, there's something new that arises, and I don't know the answer. And everything I read is is limited, I think. It doesn't always get get the picture quite right. But there are these dynamics, powers, that interact in a in some kind of dance. As there is darkness and light in teaching us and allowing us to grow. And that's all a part of the human experience, um, which is fascinating. But I, I think if we can work at integrating as best we can where we are and to our understanding, we, we're going to we're going to hopefully move on a bit towards that state of wholeness. Well, I, you have an initiative called Women, Men, Forgiveness. Mm. That was fascinating to me. Um, you probably don't know this, but I have a blog, Sacred Feminist. 
No, I didn't. <laughs> yes. I haven't written for a while, but um, oh, my passion put that in the, is there the too. as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was really, really fascinated by this initiative that you have. I never heard of anyone doing anything like this. So um, perhaps you can explain yes. what that is. Well, it, it's, it's an offering actually that hasn't really been picked up. Actually, I, but although Isn't it's still there as an offering, it's been offering that's not been picked up. I, I have this idea. I went to um, an event in London. It was a workshop. It was on the theme of um, releasing the goddess within you. Probably why I was the only guy there. <laughs> and actually, I had a lot of interest in that because I've been doing a lot of work around the archetypes, particularly looking at Greek gods and goddesses, in, and um, that got into storytelling and very storytelling courses and events taught by a wonderful lady from Crete that introduced me to a whole new appreciation of what these gods were about and how they related to some of the ideas of Carl Jung, for example, around archetype. Well, very strongly related to that. And I, I've been exploring that. And, of course, I was exploring what do the goddesses represent. And if you look, start looking at any of the Greeks, you'll realize they're not what people would think as pink and fluffy feminine. They're warriors. Warriors, and yes. They are, you know, they're defenders of Athens and so on. And so, again, you know, some of our modern-day language and labels around masculine and feminine don't always seem to apply when you, you, you look at this. But I was, I was attracted to this workshop. I went there. There was about 80 people. I was, I was, I was the only guy. And very, very welcomed and uh, actually admired, I think, for going. And I checked out with the host before, can I come? Is this going to be some sort of special red tent event or something like that? <laughs> and you know, people might feel uncomfortable if I... And she said, absolutely, I really do want to really bring home the fact that divine masculine, divine uh, sacred, whatever we, labels we put to them, are for everybody. Uh, you know, they. this is, yes, there may be some archetypes that are relevant to our biological roles, but essentially they are for everybody. To, and how wonderful you, you, you recognize that. And I was listening to stories. There were a lot of role plays and groups and things as, as tend to happen on these workshops. And, and, you know, a lot of women really pouring out. And I seemed to be in the background a little bit. They didn't seem worried about sharing and being honest, which was a privilege as well to be in. But, you know, it struck me how much angst and um, feelings of inferiority and inequality and um, lack of assertiveness and all of these things were very strong. This is only about five years ago, this event in London. And I kind of also realized that some of us in ministry can step forward and say, look, I'll be a proxy. I'll be someone who represents because I am in this physical body and therefore you can project onto me your hurt, your anger, your, you know, all the violence and so on. And I, I will just accept it. And what I hoped I would be able to do is actually to apply what the Buddhists call tonglen. It's a practice in which you are transforming all of that hurt into something beautiful and compassionate. I have to look after myself with that to some extent. So I felt this would be on a one-to-one -one basis rather than standing up in front of a, a room. I didn't think I'd be able to <laughs> do that just that yet. It could be overwhelming. It could be very overwhelming. 
But uh, yes, I've just put it there as a service. It's not something I, I, I'm not very good at promotion and marketing anyway, so it's not necessarily very visible, but it is there. It's a service. So if people approach me, I, I, would, I would be very open to that. Mm. It's a fascinating concept and you never know. There might be a listener who's going to yeah, reach exactly. out. So thank exactly. you. And thank you for seeing that. And, and offering it, I think it's brilliant. If I lived in London, lovely and brilliant. Um, and it could be the start of something, mm. that's mm. for sure. So I think we first met while you were doing a project called Labyrinth Around the USA. Mm-hmm. In, and it was in the Chicago area that we met. Um, I would love to hear more about how that came to be and your experience and what your takeaway was. Absolutely. Um, This started when I was actually taking a training course and it was a labyrinth related training course down in Houston in Texas. And it was the time of the 2016 Mm. election in the US. And that's the time when Donald Trump Yes, it was the very day uh, that the the, the, uh, the election was the result came out, and I remember coming into the room the next morning, and I think most people in that room were very upset. Actually, they were obviously on the other side, kind of thing. But I, I had a real sense of how polarized, how strongly um, at odds most people in the country were at that time. Now, I had experienced myself the same in the UK with the Brexit vote. And I was also on the wrong side in terms of where that one ended up in terms of how that evolved. But um, And seeing populist politics and really quite nasty politics um, coming to the fore in our own countries, essentially. I've always felt I find it very hard dealing with my own backyard, actually. I find it much easier when you've got that little bit of detachment with uh, probably your investment in, in the politics and, and so on. And so I felt I could be objective in the US uh, in offering something that hopefully would just be a very silent, um, totally non-political way of, of letting communities come together. That was the idea. And the labyrinth really seemed to be perfect for that because it's it's not tied to a particular faith tradition or ideology of any kind. And the idea was to circle the country. So I should go around the border states. Started in Minnesota. And the, the idea was to finish where I started. Now, it actually hasn't finished. It, my very last uh, leg, or planned leg at least, was during the pandemic. I'd already booked my flights and so on. And that all got cancelled. And since then, it hasn't actually felt right yet to return, strangely. And there's been some practical reasons and other, my, my attention has been drawn in, in other directions. But there is a small part. I had gone from Minnesota uh, over to the East Coast into Maine, right down, the, down into Florida, back across to California and up as far currently as Washington State. So <laughs> there's still a way to go. Um, the idea was that embracing the country with this energy that the, the labyrinth offers and all of the communities that are walking it and putting their own energy into it, 
would have some powerful effect. What I found almost on day one when I got on the road was this was not just about people, that the labyrinth kind of almost, I almost felt like I had a relationship with the labyrinth, mm-hmm. incredibly, almost tuning into Wonderful. it. Uh, it doesn't want to go here. And your idea of having really nice set up, typically in a nice church with candles going or something like this, or not just churches, it was other faiths and so on. And mm-hmm. I, we went all sorts of places, went to prison, schools, colleges, art galleries, um, all manner of places, really. Parks right in the middle of the, the mall in Washington, D.C., for example. Um, but not just about setting up fixed time, come along, I'm going to talk to, the, to you about the labyrinth, and we're going to have an hour or so when you can walk, and maybe there's a little bit of follow-up afterwards if you want, and then we will go home. It was. It became much more spontaneous, and knowing that there were places where it wasn't right to go with the labyrinth as well. It was particularly the case in Indigenous American territory. So I interesting. Felt, I found myself on a pilgrimage in the sense that I was detached right away from my everyday world. Um, often when you get into this spontaneous mode, uh, while often you will have accommodation the night ahead planned or something like that, that wasn't invariably the case. And I wouldn't necessarily know where I was going, where I was being led, reliant on the hospitality of strangers. Otherwise, it would have become far too expensive. And so the the opportunity for self-discovery for me and all the things that happen on pilgrimage was there as well. But it's an ongoing project, even if it's been delayed uh, until who knows when. Maybe it's next year's election. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Maybe. <laughs> we may need you again. <laughs> um, let's hope not. Let's hope that maybe we can do some things to avoid, but, but we would love to have you back. So if that that creates the completion, then I'll be happy about that. They'll be at the right time to complete it, I think. And, and again, mm-hmm. that itself is contrary to the way I would usually plan a project. It would have been done and dusted a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were following your intuition, so I trust that. And and the amount of trust you had to have in doing this day by day and not having a place to stay is really impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's it's something I'd recommend to anybody though if they have the if they have the opportunity. Well I can't wait to see how it finishes itself. And I, I for me, as a visitor, I, I, I've stayed with so many different people from different backgrounds in different places and uh, gone off of the tourist trail, if you like, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been wonderful. I've met people from, you know, very strong political views on all sides. And, uh, and I'm there as a kind of, not as a judge, I'm there as a as a guest, and and my role here is to try and bring something that brings people together and, and you know cut through the p- polarity. Wonderful. So maybe this podcast impact can help with you know your vision in in that labyrinth around the USA too. So what what are you hoping to accomplish? with our podcast and what are your hopes for us well firstly i think i'm very much in sync with you as as you know we we you mentioned last time your 
belief in the collective coming together, really making a difference. And I've seen this, practically seen this uh, working through the intention work that I do. I think for me, because I, I have a real curiosity and hunger to learn and openness, I've no doubt that probably every time there is going to be learning. And especially given the what I think is going to be quite a broad range of topics and, and guests that we have on board. But I think also possibly some of what we cover might might be a prompt for some people who are quite narrow-minded in their current beliefs or trying to understand, for example, and I think there is a distinction. We'll, we'll, again, we'll probably cover this another time. I think there's a distinction between prayer and intention but they are quite closely related and intercessory, as we might call them, topics uh, which we're offering um, will be relevant for both. But it may just be that some people get a little bit of the interfaith or a little bit of the science, a little bit of insight, a little bit of being informed for their own practice in a way that takes them in a, in a, in a, in a fruitful direction, as it were. Let's hope so. <laughs> and ultimately, this is, for me, a lot about loving kindness again. It is about that heart connection and getting, breathing in what I call the divine um, and, and letting that flow to others. You'll be showing people another way to make change with loving kindness. I, I'm sure it will be new to some people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Yeah. So is, the, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? I think we pretty well covered quite, quite a lot, really. If we had more time, and I know we've probably gone on much, much longer than we, we normally would. Um, I, do, I do hope that we, you know, the, the, the community we're setting up will thrive and people will feel they want to become very involved with that and offer their their thoughts and reflections around the intentions. Probably something that is important for me to keep in balance um, is a bit of humor and playfulness with what we do as well, because we can, some of the topics are going to be quite complex, I think, and quite heavy at times. So trying to keep things at a, a relatively light level and, and uh, if not introductory, providing pointers sometimes to where you know, those that want to find out more can do. But I really value the fact that we're doing this. And I, I was thrilled that you you uh, you had the same vision as me for the, the podcast when, when we floated the idea. Well, um, as I've told you, I was so honored when you asked me to be a part of this and grateful that you considered me worthy of doing this with oh my you. Um, it's, it's quite an honor. Um, and it was so fun to get to know you better today. Thank you for sharing so deeply. I know our listeners will appreciate knowing a little bit more about you as we move forward. I think it's always nice to know who you're listening to and their background. So yes. And that, this that's, will be appreciated. That's something as well. I hope the podcast, you know, I hope that listeners feel they're part of our conversation, essentially, even though they're, again, physically not 
the voices being heard in, in each other. I do love what you said that we're creating a community. Yes. I, I really exactly. do hope we're creating a community and um, there will be ways that people can communicate with each other. We'll, we'll figure that out. As and we're we certainly going to be inviting people, you know, that have ideas. Not necessarily mm-hmm. the case we can always entertain those ideas because, you know, we'll have quite a plan ahead uh, very often, mm-hmm. but maybe suggestions around topics and so mm-hmm. on and or offering themselves if they feel they've got something to, you know, that, that could be of interest as, as potential guests and, and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. All to come. Yes. All to come. Definitely. <laughs> so thank you. Bless you. You're listening to Impact, a podcast for anyone who believes in making a difference in the world through prayer, healing, and sending intention out into the world. Join us as we focus attention on where healing is needed right now. Together, we change our world. So let's take a look at what we picked up from the news this week. And as we record, it's the 20th of December, 2023, and see where we might home in with our prayers and intentions. And as our special focus this week, we thought we'd take a look at a crisis that is a consequence or seems to be a consequence of climate change that isn't particularly getting perhaps the publicity and visibility that it needs. There has been a a two-day workshop taking place in Washington, D.C. this week. This is at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine that's been looking particularly at the threat of airborne viruses. And in particular, this has highlighted the record number of infections of dengue fever that have been reported, particularly across the Americas this year. Across those two continents, more than 4 million cases have been recorded since January. This this also includes the Caribbean, with new infections being reported daily. More than 2,000 deaths have been reported, and among those countries which are reporting the most cases in the world are Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and Peru. Peru actually declared a state of emergency in some areas uh, earlier in the year, and outbreaks have also been reported in the US. In the Caribbean, Guadalupe and Martinique declared epidemics in August that are still ongoing. Uh, In Martinique, for example, there are 800 new cases being reported every week. And Martinique only has a a population of 394,000. Meanwhile, in Jamaica and the Bahamas, there has been an outbreak in September, and this was followed by an outbreak in Barbados in October. But it's not just in the Americas that dengue is spreading fast either. According to the World Health Organization, dengue affects some 129 countries, with roughly half of the world's population at risk. Way back in January this year, the World Health Organization warned that dengue poses a pandemic threat and is the world's fastest spreading mosquito spread disease. Global warming, marked by higher average temperatures, precipitation and longer periods of drought, is expected to prompt a record number of dengue infections this year. This was the World Health Organization's warning back in July when it's said that they estimate around 100 to 400 million cases being reported. And worldwide, more than 4.5 million cases of dengue had already been reported by November, so exceeding those estimates, with more than 4,000 deaths 
known to have occurred in 80 countries. And again, that's probably below what is the, the actual number. Countries like Bangladesh are seeing record numbers, 1,600 deaths being reported in Bangladesh this year. And only last Saturday, Nigeria reported an outbreak uh, in three areas of its Sokato state. This was really surprising to me. We are not hearing about this very much in the U.S. So I was interested, you know, what is dengue fever? And according to the World Health Organization, dengue is also known as breakbone fever, is a viral infection and it spreads from mosquitoes to people. The disease is mainly transmitted by the Aedes mosquito, which is more common in tropical and subtropical climates. The virus is transmitted mainly by infected female Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, I hope I'm saying that right, which bites hosts to obtain protein for its eggs. The virus can cause various symptoms, including crushing headaches, fever, pain behind the eyes, muscle and joint pains, nausea, rash, and vomiting. But thankfully, most people don't get symptoms. According to the Center for Disease Control, about one in 20 people who get sick will develop severe dengue. And in severe cases, the infection can lead to dengue hemorrhagic fever or dengue shock syndrome, which can be fatal if not treated properly. What's more, repeated infections mean a higher risk of developing severe dengue. Available data show that severe dengue has a mortality rate of between 2 and 5% in people whose symptoms are treated. When left untreated, however, the mortality rate is 15%. So why are cases rising? And the main reason seems to be climate change. Higher temperatures cause the virus to spread more easily, while its treatment is frustrated by poor sanitation and inadequate health systems, insufficient mosquito control measures, and a lack of available vaccines in some countries. Scientists believe that extreme weather events are helping the 80s mosquito thrive in warm and humid environments and extend their habitat range. Dr. Jeremy Farrar, who is a chief scientist of the World Health Organization, says these infections are a symptom of some big underlying trends happening in the world. Climate change is seemingly so difficult to address, and so many countries are being becoming urbanized. I can see dengue and the other diseases becoming increasingly frequent and increasingly complex to deal with. The mosquito manages to survive even when there is water scarcity, said a WHO expert. So both during a flood situation as well as a drought situation, dengue can increase. The virus and the vector multiply faster at a higher temperature, and this is a well-known fact. The Aedes mosquito has moved into new areas of Asia as well as South and Central America, and it is also expanding within Africa and the warmer regions of Australia, the United States, and parts of Southern Europe. And I was really impacted by the statistic that half of the world's population is at risk here. It's incredible, isn't it, uh, that we're not hearing yes. more about this, really. And uh, mm -hmm. it's getting very close. <clears throat> well, for those of us that uh, are fortunate to live in temperate zones generally and uh, think we're far away from tropical uh, diseases, 
and particularly mosquito-borne diseases, this is becoming much closer to home, coming into the likes of California and uh, some of the southwestern states in the US, for example. I actually uh, believe that the very county where I live in Essex many years ago had an outbreak of dengue. <laughs> it's wow. A, yeah, before it was urbanized, <laughs> as it is now, um, and still around the edges. It was very marshy, a lot of stale water, uh, humidity higher than in many other parts of <clears throat> the UK, and they seem to attract uh, mosquitoes. But uh, who knows? They may well be on their way back here. So how can it be prevented? Well, according to the World Health Organization, preventing mosquito bites is the best way to avoid getting dengue. In other words, deal with it before the problem comes. There are some vaccines available uh, which can uh, combat it, but there are no specific treatments for the virus once you become infected. Many countries are responding through education and a whole variety of preventive measures. Although one of the difficulties, one of the pressures post-COVID, which was very expensive, of course, for many countries, is that health budgets have been cut. And so actually being able to invest in wide-scale um, education and vaccination programs is very limited. But still, there is an attempt at education. And in some countries like Jamaica, Barbados, and other uh, islands in the Caribbean, using insecticide to reduce mosquito populations. And just letting people know to be careful when discarding things like old tires, which collect stale water, and sleeping under netting if they're able. Again, that's not <coughs> obviously available to, to everyone. Something I tend to do whenever I've been in the tropics, because I'm very prone to, to insect bites, is wearing long sleeve shirts and trousers. Pants, as you call them, I think, in the US. Elsewhere, yes. <laughs> pants here, I don't know why, in the UK, means underwear. Oh. <laughs> it's just well, that a, too. It's just an abbreviation of underpants. <laughs> there you go. Need to know. <laughs> Need to know. Elsewhere, individuals and households have been advised to eliminate mosquito breeding sites using repellents. Again, these cost money, of course, not always available. Wearing protective clothes installing doors, window screens, um, uh, to prevent the mosquitoes hopefully getting in. So this is something which really does seem to be a threat, uh, to humans at least, that we should be talking about and aware about. Uh, an example perhaps of Mother Nature really acting in a way that uh, perhaps is meant to restore balance of, of sorts, being able to adapt to be in environments where um, there's drought as well as where there's water. It was quite an incredible learning for me when we were looking into this story. So our suggested intention for this week, and again, with our intentions, we could focus on many different aspects of this, but being very, very specific, we will, that the health ministers of all countries in the Americas will be moved to use all known effective means at their disposal to contain the spread of dengue fever. We will, that the health ministries of all countries in the Americas will be moved to use all known effective means at their disposal to contain the spread of dengue fever. So please join with us, uh, if you will, in holding that intention uh, between our episodes. We'll, as always, put this in the show notes. 
Other stories that have caught our attention this week are a hope of transition plan following the July coup in Nigeria. So last Thursday, Nigeria's ruling military leadership has agreed to terms and conditions of a transition back to civilian rule, according to the chief mediator attempting to broker that peaceful transition in the country. His name is Togo Foreign Minister Robert Ducey. And they say they will present the plan to the regional bloc, the Economic Community of West African State Commissions, which forms one of those lovely acronyms, ECOWAS, a regional political and economic union of 15 countries located in West Africa. I did not know there was that um, Mm. commission. The military seized power in Nigeria in July following a coup that ousted longstanding President Mohamed Bazoum. And since that time, the country has faced severe sanctions and suspended trade with its neighbors and other ECOWAS nations. So this sounds like a move in the right direction. Let's hope. It does. Let's intend. Yeah, exactly. There there is uh, clearly a willingness to talk, which has been uh, a a problem with with that country in the past. It's actually really only recently, as I understand it, that mediation has started taking place. So this does sound very promising. Yay. And moving now from West Africa to the other side of the world, to Australia, and to the beautiful uh, far north Queensland state, uh, which has been affected by heavy rains in the, the wake of the former tropical cyclone Jasper. This weekend, this brought really heavy rains over much of northern Queensland, and the rains were continuing to frustrate rescue services and threaten more flooding. The main town in the region, Cairns, which is home to 150,000 people, received about 600 millimetres, that's 24 inches of rain, just this past weekend, which is more than three times the December average. Several hundred people have been evacuated, But at the same time, many settlements remain cut off and many homes remain without power. Rescue teams are searching inundated areas cut off by the floods. And damage was reported along an expansive coastline that stretched for more than 400 kilometres. There's some pretty harrowing scenes, I think would be terrifying for me, of crocodiles coming out of the rivers onto dry land and sort of sharing close space with humans. (laughs) <laughs> I saw that. Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. <gasps> and the size of the snakes they have there as well is pretty terrifying. I think I'd be staying in my house if it <laughs> wasn't flooded. I, <laughs> I think I would too. We're joking, but of course, if you're in this situation, it is a, it's a harrowing time. And we, we really will that help will get to you as quickly as possible. Yes. And there's a good news story over in Austria. I love this uh, new innovative thinking, a new plan. The housing first model is set to address homelessness in Austria. So the Austrian newspaper Der Standard reports that the country wants to provide over 1,000 homeless individuals with their own flats or apartments, as we say in the States, within the next 12 months, backed by a 6.6 million euro investment. The model follows an approach taken by Finland, 
where homelessness has been reduced by over 50% since 2008. This approach ensures that homeless individuals are directly allocated their own flats. And under this program, a recipient signs their tenancy agreement and independently would cover the rent expenses. And social workers offer ongoing support addressing their crises and assisting with financial and daily life challenges within the confines of their new homes with the overarching goal of facilitating a sustained escape from homelessness, providing you know, some support that will help change their lives. So 20,000 individuals currently are homeless in Austria, and many of those people are under the age of 30. I think they're at a time where some support could make a lifelong impact for them. Yeah. So this is wonderful. This is wonderful news. And what a trailblazer the, the Finland example shows as well. Yes, very helpful. Mm, definitely. Now, there have been a number Maybe we of... we all can learn something from Finland. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think there's much we can learn from uh, the, the Nordic states in general. And talking of Nordic states, uh, well, I don't think this is Nordic, but certainly um, sort of extension of Scandinavia, Iceland this week has experienced a major volcano. This uh, occurred on Iceland's, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, so apologies if you're Icelandic, Reykjanes Peninsula which is just north of the fishing town, or the, the volcano, I should say, is just north of the fishing town of Grindavik. It began on Monday following an earthquake swarm, and, and there had been weeks of seismic activity in the region, which has really caused those who watch these things to be on red alert. Thousands of people have been evacuated, but I think that the Icelandic president, uh, Gudni Thorlesius Johannesson, summed this situation up well when he wrote on X or Twitter, as it used to be known, we now wait to see what the forces of nature have in store. And meanwhile, in China, more than 111 people have been killed in an earthquake that struck China's northwestern Gansu province shortly before midnight on Monday. The China Earthquake Network Center said in a statement that the magnitude 6.2 quake hit Jisan County, I hope I'm saying that right, at a depth of a little more than six miles, damaging more than 6,000 homes. Chinese President Xi Jinping ordered an all-out search and rescue efforts and proper arrangements for those affected to ensure the safety of people's lives and property. But some good news reported by the U.S.-based um, nonprofit conservation and environmental news platform Mongabay. And this comes from Brazil in the northern region of that country's Bahia state, where 35 communities are showing the way towards reducing deforestation and what has been quite a trend towards des desertification, um, big word they use in the environmental circles, in that area. They've united under what's called the Ricartin Giamenta Project. I probably have said that completely wrong as well which is a community-led initiative aimed at conserving and rejuvenating nearly 100,000 acres of the dry forest in that part of northeastern Brazil. It's very rugged territory, very hostile area, averse to life. It's also the rainiest, this is an interesting fact, the rainiest dry land region on the planet. And what that actually means is the rain comes 
only at a very specific time in the year, just four months, the rest of the time it is in drought. Another added problem to plant growth is that the soil is mostly shallow and rocky, which doesn't allow for easy planting of trees uh, for reforestation. This region, though, is still inhabited by 28 million people, not to mention thousands of plant and vertebrate species, many of which have adapted to survive there. Now, among the conservation efforts, a good example is where fencing has been installed to corral what are thousands of goats in the area that graze on the few available plants. This, in turn, has allowed plants elsewhere to thrive and has also seen less soil being depleted. So it's a very good example of restoring dry forest areas by allowing nature itself to take care of them with minimal human intervention. When they're free from the goats, the new shoots of the plants become trees, which in turn drop their seeds on the ground and germinate other plants. One of the local supporters of the project said, we are already seeing more ground cover for plants, which are important for keeping the soil covered and preventing water loss through evaporation. In turn, that's allowing more plants to develop. So some some general reflections about these stories. Uh, natural disasters and impacts of rising global temperatures stand out again. Yet there are examples of some conservation projects like in Brazil where humans and nature are working together and even goats are working too. I love goats. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That is such a beautiful story. That way, humans, they've, they've actually really sensed what is needed here, uh, that we all mm-hmm. need as a plant and human and other animal species to adapt and, and kind of work together. And it's simple. It's a it's simple solution. Very simple. People, someone was just using their brain, you know, and came up with an easy, Def- an easy fix. And clearly it's bearing results. That's, that's very tangible. Yes, So as always, we we will send and hold intention where there are rescue and rebuild efforts required in the aftermath of natural disasters, Um, many of which, as always, seem to be hastened by rising temperatures and sea levels. And also we will, those leaders who talk tough about offering help in the immediate aftermath of these disasters, stay true to their words for the long term. Good, though, to hear that there is a promise of return to civilian rule in Niger. And that whole region, West Africa, I believe there have been something like three coups in different countries in as many years. So um, a lot of instability and uncertainty there. But very good that the ECOWAS regional bloc of 15 countries in that region is working, working together to make this transition back to normality uh, happen. So let's will that they will be uh, continue to be moved to make good on that promise and to work towards that particular end. Absolutely. And finally, a good news story to end with. A species that came back from extinction, well, almost extinction. The scimitar-horned oryx is roaming in Chad again after conservationists reintroduced it using captive animals. The oryx return prompted the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, another one of those acronyms I love, to this week, relist the animal from extinct in the wild to endangered. 
Also making rapid progress up the list is the Saigai antelope. Native to Kazakhstan, it was threatened with extinction only 10 years ago, but now there are around 1.3 million of them, an increase of 1,100% since 2015. So that is very hopeful, even as a metaphor of what we can do in the world, 1,100% increase mm, we can accomplish. Absolutely. That is quite amazing, isn't it, really? And this has been the mm -hmm. case where quite often where animals have been reintroduced into the wild, that populations are now thriving. I know here in Europe, in parts of Europe, wolves have been reintroduced in recent years, and that's been controversial for farmers, for example, who are concerned about <coughs> wolves attacking their, their livestock and so on. But those populations are, are coming back and uh, there is they, they play an important part, seemingly, in the, the local ecosystem. Um, right. Where I am, we've had, I'm trying to think, are they otters or, or beavers? <laughs> Which used to be very common. It used to be very common in Southeast England, but there have been a number of uh, reserves where they've been reintroduced. And again, they perform, I think it's beavers, because they're the, are they the ones that build dams and play quite yes. an important part in yes. water management and <laughs> really do a lot of, a lot of very good work. So mm -hmm. uh, it is, it's very encouraging to, to know these stories are, are there and, uh, often in, re you know, remote parts of the world, Chad, uh, um, Kazakhstan, uh, and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yay. Yay to the mm -hmm. IUCN. Absolutely. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. We are aware that people are celebrating throughout the world different holidays and gatherings, and we hope that you're finding peace and joy wherever you are. Thank you for listening and for sharing with us and holding intentions. Yes, we wish you very happy holidays and peace wherever you are. And next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Since we're coming towards the end of the year, we thought it would be good to enjoy some of the really good news stories that have occurred this year. But we'll be looking back at a year of actually many things that we can give thanks for. And so our particular focus for intention this week, as a reminder, talking about what's been happening with the spread of dengue fever in the Americas, is that we will, of the health ministries of all countries in the Americas, will be moved to use all known effective means at their disposal to contain the spread of dengue fever. Do join me each day on Insight Timer for a daily intention focus and join Ellen on the Labyrinth Activist Network. You can find out where to find us in our show notes. But from me now, thank you, go well, stay safe. And remember, we're more powerful together. Impact is presented by Ellen Vince and Clive Johnson and produced by Impact Productions. Our theme music is by Chris Collins and our logo artwork is by Auto Classic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible or your favourite podcast provider. We're a non-commercial podcast dedicated to people of any faith tradition or none who yearn for healing in our troubled world. Please pass on the word so others may join us in making an impact. Thank you for listening.